Yippee-ki-yay, movie fans. We're back on the film frontier. I'm Felicity. I'm Clarence. Uh, today we have the 1971 movie, The Hired Hand, which is the directorial debut of Peter Fonda. Um, in this uh, film, Peter Fonda plays Harry Collings, a cowboy uh, who, along with his two friends, Arch and Dan, played by Warren Oates and Robert Pratt, respectively, uh, have grown weary of drifting, and, they, and Harry decides to return home to the wife and daughter he abandoned seven years ago. After the youngest of the three, Dan, is killed by horse thieves, Arch decides to ride with Harry back to the family farm. Didn't recognize this place until I saw that peak. Guess I decided then. It's just a waste living like this, Arch. You gonna go with Harry? You ain't gonna go to the coast? Where you gonna go then? Home. How long is it gonna take you to ride back? A week? Thereabouts? I mean, once she's married. Is he dead? to come back this way you think i can't send you away you think you're still married to me but that ain't so i don't want janie upset as far as she knows her father is dead i don't want you saying no different look hannah just let me work the place for a bit like a hired hand since she slept with the hired help Cut off one of Arch's fingers. One each week, they say, till I get there. Arch is in this trouble because of me. I have to get him out of it. And when that's done, I'll be back. Kill him. I'll kill him. Where's Harris? He's here. So I think before we launch into our opinions of the movie and more about the filmmaking behind it, I, I want to talk more about the context of when this film was being made and sort of what led into it. You've probably heard a lot about the new Hollywood movement in American cinema. It was sort of coming after these giant studio flops, one of which we have covered on a previous episode, <laughs> right. Paint Your Wagon. <clears throat> right. The studios were very confused as to what audiences wanted. And we're caught completely off guard by the success of Easy Rider and films like that. Right. So it's coming off that success of Easy Rider, like you mentioned, um, which is a film made by Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda, the mm -hmm. director and star of this film, that sort of captured the imagination and the zeitgeist of young filmgoers who were kind of sick of this very... Uh, Studio-controlled, giant budget, like roadshow productions right. of things <clears throat> like Paint Your Wagon, Hello Dolly, huge epic failures. Right, and it sort of gave way to more like auteur-led cinema, a lot more counterculture, right. uh, embedded cinema. And that sort of thing, a lot of which Easy Rider tapped into. Um, yeah, it definitely led to the era of the director-driven filmmaking uh, of the 70s. And uh, and Peter Fonda was a beneficiary of that because of the success of Easy Rider. Because of that, um, there was this Universal film executive, Ned Tannen, 
who was made chief of a new youth division at Universal in 1969. It was the old man executive, Lou Wasserman, (laughs) said, hey, kid, you're a little bit younger than us. Why don't you spearhead this? This this executive, Ned Tannen, his... 1971 film slate included this movie, Monty Hellman's Tulane Blacktop, right. Milos Forman's Taking Off, Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie, and John Cassavetes's uh, Minion Moskowitz. Oh, and Douglas Trumbull's Silent Running. Wow, that was that was his year. <laughs> That's quite a lineup, and several of those were gigantic flops. Totally, yeah. But I think you look at those; they're all kind of auteur-driven to yes. some extent. I mean, the fact that you probably recognize a lot of those directors, or especially big cinephiles out there recognize the names of those right. directors. They're, I think, very memorable films, uh, especially looking on them now, very reflective of the times in which they're made. Right. And the idea was that these would be sort of lower-budget films, uh, relatively speaking, and that the director would have creative control over the project. Right. It was actually an initiative that Ned Tannen and Universal led where they gave these five filmmakers, uh, Fonda, Foreman, Trumbull, Lucas, and Hellman. Um, They gave each of those $1 million each, said, go make a movie. Mm -hmm. We will have no intervention, little to no intervention. (laughs) I don't know how true that ended up being. Right. I know that uh, they really interfered with Minion Moskowitz. And yeah, and the last movie barely got released and was shelved. I mean, just was recently restored. But sort of the idea was, this is pennies to the studio. (laughs) Yeah. It's $5 million for five different chances, which... If they were going towards one movie, you know, that would just be one shot at making either a flop or a success. Right. Kind of in exchange, the talent were paid scale, but they were given a hefty piece of the back end, even up to like 50%. Wow. Not too shabby. But it was just sort of ironic seeing these counterculture kids sort of become moguls in a way. Yeah, Like they yeah. were the sought after ones. It wasn't even that these, that Universal was like, discovering fresh talent they were going to these young filmmakers who had already quote-unquote been discovered by Mm -hmm. someone else and said oh they've tapped into something how can we exploit that but it was sort of a folly in that they didn't know how to handle product that these young filmmakers came up right right i think for the most part was the the history of their failure yes yes and it's interesting like because some of these movies are really good i mean two-lane blacktop i think is an amazing movie Mm -hmm. uh a great film. Uh, also featuring Warren Oates. Yes, our star yes, of this the, the great film. Warren Oates. Yeah. yeah, and this film that we're talking about today, I think, is a really good movie yeah. as well. I think it's interesting. the The Universal executive I'm referencing, Ned Tannen, he said of this time, they said to kids who could not have gotten an appointment on the lot two weeks earlier, "It's your movie. Don't come back to us with your problems. We don't even want to know about them." <laughs> These are not movies where the studios were dealing with someone they trusted. They were dealing with kids whom they didn't trust, didn't like their arrogant behavior, didn't like the way they dressed, didn't want to see ponytails and sandals in the commissary while they were eating. They viewed them with absolute dread. (laughs) Beyond dread. It was like they just wanted to send them to a concentration camp. Wow. But the studio left them alone because they thought they'd screw it up if they interfered and the movies didn't cost anything. Yeah. What a great blessing to be one of those directors to have this just go make your movie. Here's, Completely. you know, yeah, without any interference. Yeah, I, I wish more people did that today. <clears throat> I know. More studios <laughs> did that today. It is so fascinating <clears throat> to see this little experiment at a certain time in right. American cinema. I guess where it did uh, come back to bite them was when it, once it got to distribution, that's when everything kind of fell apart for a lot of those movies, yeah. I think. And I sort of want to keep that in mind as we talk about this movie. The risk taking that was happening in this era 
but also sort of the commercial failure yes. and what that would mean for <clears throat> the future of American cinema. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the sort of movies that it led to. And I, I'm, I know they were all hoping for another easy rider, and none of these movies is right. an easy rider in any way. Yeah. yeah. In a number of ways. Yes. It is not <laughs> yes. an easy rider. <laughs> Just real quick, I want to wrap up talking about uh, Universal Exec Montana. Mm-hmm. Um, he would go on to make uh, American Graffiti, which was a beneficiary of this. Yes. Um, I, don't, I don't even know what to call it. Initiative. The Youth Movement Initiative right. or whatever, yeah. Um, he'd also go on to make uh, Jaws, Smokey and the Bandit, The Deer Hunter, The Blues Brothers, Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, St. Elmo's Fire, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Top Gun, and Fatal Attraction. Wow. At his time, I think, at both Universal and at Paramount. Wow. Yeah. That's that's not a bad track record. And a lot of youth-heavy films. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting. Another fun fact is that uh, the Back to the Future character villain, Biff Tannen, is named after him. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, he was overly aggressive to its writers while they were making another movie um, in a meeting, even accusing them of attempting to make an anti-Semitic film. Wow. And as payback, he named <laughs> they named their uh, their heavy after after Ned. Yeah, that's funny. Isn't that great? So, sort of continuing to touch upon Universal's approach with this movie, with the hired hand. Sort of jumping the gun here a little bit, but after the release of this film, they did a really poor job of marketing it right right (laughs) the marketing executives in as much as the development executives maybe knew that they could trust these young filmmakers to carry out their their vision the marketing executives had no idea how to handle it right they thought oh this is a western picture we'll just market it as a western picture we'll like buzz up peter fonda he's he's the hot (laughs) young star right there was a billboard near the chateau marmont in los angeles and fonda said it had a cutout of my naked torso coming up over the top with a cowboy hat on and my legs tied up in rope, guns stuck in my belt, and it said, that easy rider is riding again, riding fast and hard across the West. <laughs> <laughs> and Fonda asked uh, his studio boss, Lou Wasserman, to take the sign down or, quote, I'll take it down. I was prepared to take it down with explosives. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did not care for that uh, <laughs> no. promotional... Uh... Uh, direction there was another tagline i think this was used maybe on both the poster and the trailer peter fonda is writing again to the woman he lost for the revenge he craves (laughs) and like in no way is it a revenge movie no no (laughs) that's a totally separate genre i guess he is writing back to the woman he loves but not in the way that it implies in any way yeah this is not that kind of movie and they did the same thing for another movie we've mentioned two-lane blacktop the tagline for it was the far out world of the high speed scene (laughs) and if anybody has seen that movie that's yeah that's not how it goes down no not at all it's not this it's not a fast pace yes furious precursor (laughs) like no. Yeah, anyone who's seen a Monty Hellman film knows that's not the case. Yeah. But I, I think what the what Universal ended up with was this art movie that they were not expecting. Yeah. And they gave it this really limited release, not very many theaters, and I think they pulled it after a week. Yeah, I think they had no no faith in it. Yeah. Didn't know how to promote it, like you said. And... Didn't give it the opportunity to make back its budget. Right. Um, <clears throat> Just yeah. let it die.
rewinding a little bit, let's talk about Peter Fonda, who is our mm-hmm. filmmaker here and our star. I've heard him referred to as the third most famous Fonda, <laughs> which I th- could even be arguable. Yeah, I mean, it might be fourth most. Bridget? Yeah, Bridget. At the time, Bridget was a pretty big deal. Yeah, I don't know when that quote is from. But... <laughs> yeah, Peter, obviously uh, son of screen legend Henry Fonda and yeah. brother to Jane Fonda. I think he started sort of began his career as like the boy next door kind yeah, of actor. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a sensitive type. Uh, started like in TV mostly. Mm-hmm. Did a few features. Didn't kind of really hit his stride in the late 60s when he started working with Roger Corman, I'd say, with right. like The Wild Angels and The Trip. And uh, and that was sort of his formation into this counterculture right, icon. Right, As we discussed, uh, he helps develop and co-write uh, Easy Rider. With right, with Dennis, Dennis Hopper. Hopper. And that's a whole saga unto itself. <laughs> Many lawsuits between the two of them over how much involvement right. there was. But Let's not get distracted by that. But I think it's interesting, a little side note about Easy Rider. Uh Fonda conceived of that movie as a modern Western, as he says, with two hip guys on bikes instead of old movie stars on horses. And even named the characters Wyatt and Billy. Right. Um, He even went further saying the story was about the Duke and Jeffrey Hunter looking for Natalie Wood. I would be the Duke and Jeffrey Hunter would be my ward bond. America would be our Natalie Wood, and after a long journey to the east across John Ford's America, what would become of us? Wow. That's clearly the mindset he's in. Right, right. He's grown up on Westerns, probably as both a result of his father being a, a star giant of Westerns. Western star. Right, and working with John Ford, the preeminent master of the right. Western, yeah. As well as just growing up in that time and right. watching them. And Yes, his lifetime would have been the prime era of the Western, yeah. Right. His youth. Easy Rider became like his defining success. Yes. So you're the man who killed the big movies, eh? <laughs> you know they're referring to you as that now in the in the business? Yeah, I know. There's a lot of people who don't like uh, Dennis and me and Bert Schneider out there in California. Yeah. I think about three or 4,000 executives had to pack up and move out. Uh, should anyone not know, it's because of the gigantic success of Easy Rider. The, uh, Is that a lot what of it was? Do they uh, have you followed out there because you have killed the big movies? Uh, they have me tapped. Yeah. Not in the bank, on the phone. Right. Oh, you really? Are you serious? <laughs> oh, come, come, come now. Come, come, come now. And, of course, as a result of that, he got all these opportunities, of which he decided to make The Hired Hand. Right. The movie was originally submitted to him as acting only. It was apparently going to be shot in Italy, which oh. it was not. <laughs> He eventually acquired it with his company, the Pando Company, and decided he was going to direct it. I'd read that a uh, friend of his passed the screenplay along to him, yeah. and he had no idea uh, that the writer was actually uh, a Scottish screenwriter uh, who wrote several westerns, which we'll get back to yeah. later. He also said it was the first western I'd read that showed the life of a woman in the West in 1881. Yeah. Which is pretty true. It is true, yeah. Even to this day. It's, I think Jane had, uh, congratulated him on making a feminist western at one point. <laughs> No, that's coming from Jane. Yeah. <laughs> well, why don't we go ahead and talk about uh, screenwriter Alan Sharp, okay. the, the Scotsman you yes. mentioned. <laughs> Do you want to take us through some of his big credits here? Uh, sure. He uh, began as a uh, novelist in Scotland and won a couple of prizes there. And then he decided to move to Hollywood and become a screenwriter to write westerns and crime films. And when he, he did this film, he did uh, Robert Aldrich's Ozana's Raid, which is a great western. He did another western called Billy Two Hats. He wrote Night Moves for Arthur Penn, which is one of the seminal 70s films, uh, detective film. Mm -hmm. Um, He wrote The Osterman Weekend for Peckinpah. 
Uh, he wrote Rob Roy in the 90s, which was a big uh, Liam Neeson film, mm-hmm. a Scottish film. And I think a lot of people love that screenplay. Yeah, I th- yeah, I think it was a highly acclaimed screenplay. The Last Run, which was a Richard Fleischer, uh, George C. Scott film, I think originally began by John Huston, but he left after disagreements with George C. Scott. But anyways, a lot of, you know, big movies and, you know, important films of the 70s, and, and mm-hmm. I think, yeah. One obituary noted of him, he never quite became a household name. He had a life and lifestyle he enjoyed, and that seemed to be enough. He had a huge talent, but sometimes he seemed to act to lack ambition, or was reluctant to commit himself, or seemed afflicted with doubt about his own abilities, dismissing his work as pastiche. Hmm. And I think a lot of people have kind of said what you just said, that he may be a little overlooked in this new Hollywood echelon that he, he probably should be alongside a lot of these filmmakers we're right. talking about. Or like Robert Town or somebody like that. Especially since he deals with these like American themes, what it means to be American. Right, and, and really well. Like I think yeah. his screenplay in this movie, I think mean, captures you know the dialogue of the time very well uh he's got the Ilzana film is great i mm-hmm. think so you know he can he has that voice he he was able to do it and and especially just coming here instantly and and, and yeah. grasping it right away but i think this quote from him directly kind of illustrates that ambition that the obituary noted writing feature films is great but to be honest i prefer the system in television and i follow the money and the money is in television. <laughs> yeah, steady work. You know, Yeah. maybe not necessarily about the art. <laughs> in as artful as he could be. Yeah. And then just a little fun fact about him. He is the father-in-law of Luke Perry. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, How about that? Hmm. And I, I don't think he ever wrote another novel after he left yeah, Scotland. Really? Yeah, I think oh. he wrote two and started a third that never he never finished. And I don't think he ever hmm. wrote another novel. I mean, I think we've rightfully given a lot of credit to Alan Sharp here. But... Uh, it's also worth noting that in 1973, Harry Joe Brown Jr. reportedly sued the producers for $250,000, alleging that he had written the screenplay. Oh. And that the filmmakers had conspired to, to induce him to sell his screenplay to Universal for a lesser sum and just like a co-producer credit. And <laughs> Interesting. It's possible that they settled or something because there's a credit it says a Pando production in association with Brown, Lifton, and Weiss. Interesting. Hmm. Don't know if that's what that's about. Right. Let's go ahead and talk about another major contributor to this film, the cinematographer uh, Vilma Sigmund. Yes, um, this was his first major Hollywood production, and would sort of launch him into being one of the major DPs in Hollywood. Uh, you know, highly sought after uh, DPs. He credited this uh, as his uh, first major film assignment. He said. Uh, Before The Hired Hand, I basically did commercials. The Hired Hand was probably the first time that I, as a cinematographer, actually had a dramatic story with good actors. I think he was working a lot in, like, exploitation, too. Yeah, he was exploitation. He did one movie that I'm blanking on the title now. Like, I think the film that he did right before this was Horror of the Blood Monsters. So, anyways, Vilmos was born in Hungary. He had wanted to study photography, but under the communist regime of the time, he was not allowed to because his family was considered too bourgeois. He ended up getting a camera somehow on his own and started, you know, taking photographs. And the local commissars found this and, and uh, were impressed and allowed him to enter the uh, film school in Hungary, in Budapest. And so he studied film there. He became friends with uh, another student, Lazlo Kovacs, who would be the DP on Easy Rider, and shot a number of 70s films, another major um, DP of the 70s. During the Hungarian Revolution in 1956, they snuck out a camera from the film school 
put it in a shopping bag, I think, mm-hmm. and secretly filmed the revolution. Through like a hole in the bag. Through a hole in the bag. Yeah. And then smuggled that out of Hungary, and they ended up in the United States and sold that footage to CBS, to, to Walter Cronkite, who did a documentary on it. Once they came to the U.S., they both kind of worked uh, on low-budget films and, and, and exploitation films and that kind of thing. Laszlo Kovacs recommended Vilmos to Peter Fonda while they were making um, Easy Rider. And that's how he got the job. Well, Peter wanted Laszlo to shoot this one, but he was unavailable. And right. so he was like, oh, I'm gonna check my take, buddy. <laughs> take this guy. Yeah. And then later that same year, Vilmos would shoot uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller for uh, Robert Altman, which is like one of the most beautiful films mm-hmm. uh, of that era. And that's like a, you know, a giant leap forward. Um, and over the next decade, he would shoot Deliverance, The Long Goodbye, again for Altman, Obsession for Brian De Palma. Uh, Sugarland Express and Close Encounters for Spielberg, The Deer Hunter and Heaven's Gate for uh, Michael Cimino. He's known for the technique uh, pre-fogging or flashing the film, which involves uh, carefully exposing the film negative to a little bit of light, hmm. a controlled amount of light, and then to create it helps create that kind of hazy pattern that you would see in a lot of his later work. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And that's sort of a lot of the look of the 70s in a way to me. Like, I think of that, yeah. like, of all those films. Right. I think he neglected to mention the 24 episodes of the Mindy Project. Yes. <laughs> How could I forget that? Mm-hmm. Yes. His most important work. I mean, just a, just a giant yeah. of, of the industry and, and one of the most important DPs of that era. For this movie, uh, Peter approached almost with his father's movie, My Darling Clementine, and said, if you could make a color film that looks like this, I would be very happy. This is the kind of movie I want to make. It's an old-fashioned movie. I don't mind if the actors sit down and say dialogue. I don't want to make an easy writer out of this. I want to have a straight, dramatic picture with good characters. And Vilmos said, we tried to get it as realistic as possible, maybe a little better than real. Hmm. Yeah. I think that comes across. I think so, too. Yeah. yeah. And it, and the film does feel kind of old-fashioned in a way. It does. Yeah. Definitely. And it, it has, I bet at the time it seemed very revisionist and artsy fartsy hippie western or something, but I don't see that now. Revisionist you know? in style, I don't think revisionist in substance. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, the montages and things like that. that yeah, yeah. We'll and, well, and they were, I think, very influenced by like the European, yes. neorealist, French New Wave. Right, all that stuff, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Godard and Truffaut were, you know, all the rage at that mm-hmm. point. I, uh, it's a question of my... Uh, I'm asking to myself why American pictures are so popular all around. I mean, after all, the Swedish pictures are not so popular around, maybe in Sweden, but not necessarily in Switzerland or in Portugal. Or, mm-hmm. And why Americans can go in any country and the audience is uh, opening the door? I wonder. There must be some good things in it. I don't think th- that way. And, uh, but it's a, it's a mystery. You don't see good things where other people do in American films? Yes, quite a lot. You, you, oh. you are the only ones who invent stories. Uh, you have an, um, huge, uh, a, a tremendous capacity of inventing stories. Mm-hmm. Just you don't care about who receive it and the way you, you receive it. But you, you go on invent, inventive. That's, your, that's very strong. And I think that's why America, even when it's very weak, when the dollar is very weak, it, it is still the strongest from his weakness. There is a, a mystery about that. Uh, but even then, apparently, Vilmos had to teach Fonda a lot of things. Like, he didn't know about, like, screen direction and, like, wow. didn't understand why someone would have to come on from one direction and that sort of thing. Interesting. But, but he said he was a very quick study. <laughs> so at least he gave him That's that, good. that credit. <laughs> 
we, we've kind of talked about the style a little bit, mm-hmm. but, and like you said, there are all these montages, it's kind of hazy, it's, it's, it is, I think, it has a real quality to it, and I think a lot of criticism of the film, not necessarily from us, but from other people, right. is that maybe the style outweighs the substance. Yeah, yeah. And sort of gets in the way of the plot and of the movie. As a response to that, someone someone asked Vilmos about that. And he said, there was not much to overpower, actually. I think that was one of the problems with The Hired Hand, that it was really an anti-dramatic film. Now, if you don't have a really dramatic film, what do you do? Do you underplay the photography? Then you have nothing. You don't even have style. Why are people going to see a film which has no photography and no story? So what do you do? With films that are over-photographed, the screenplay is not dramatic. Everybody said the same thing about McCabe and Mrs. Miller. They said the film didn't have a strong and valid story, and I disagreed with that because I think it had a lot of things to say. Many times they said the photography is too good. The photography can never be too good. (laughs) Sort of another process that they included that I want to touch on a little bit here is um, the specific camera that they use. Mm -hmm. They use the Aeriflex, Mm -hmm. which was a popular camera at the time Especially in the the lower budget independent cinema, like I think Cassavetes used it a lot. I think like Coppola used it because it was lightweight, portable. You could like set it up with one guy, mm-hmm. relatively cheap. You could really like get into scenes, get like intimate with the actors. Yeah, not that kind of intimate, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Scorsese used that a lot too. That yeah. camera sort of encouraged improvisation with the actors and you could also get out on location with it because you could set it up basically anywhere right and so they use that on this film it sort of for like b-roll apparently they use Vilmos's like personal Aeriflex they shot the entire opening which I think is one of the more memorable parts of the movie yes which is the guys by a river just messing around right, one of them bathing in the river yeah, yeah they're fishing just yeah just camping out there peter said our normal procedure was to call rap for the day wait until the rest of the cast and crew had disappeared and then take out vilmos's own airyflex to shoot late evening shots Interesting. so it was just, a l- just an uh... extra little bit <laughs> i mean this was like a battery powered camera but it was like motion picture quality right product but i just wanted to like highlight this influential sort of invention i guess it not even new at the time it had been around a pioneering documentary cinematographer richard leacock said hitler's two positive contributions were the vw and the aeriflex (laughs) (laughs) and another actor described it in 1969 look man acting isn't the thing anymore it's getting out there with an aeriflex and finding where it's at and what it is Oh, wow. So it's just getting into the vibe of the time. Sure, (laughs) right. Which I think is a lot of what can be said about Peter Fonda is the vibe. Yes, the vibe, yes. (laughs) But Vilmos helped him accomplish that. It's a beautiful film. Yeah. And it reminds me, I don't don't know if it's just because it's Peter Fonda, but it does remind me of my darling Clementine Mm -hmm. a little bit, you know. Just the way he moves and reacts to things reminds me of of Fonda, his father in uh, My Darling Clementine. Yeah, Peter said of this movie, I'm sure they would have liked me to do another biker movie, but I wanted to try something different, something more like what my father might have done. I wanted to do a Western because it's the genre where you can explore the mythologies of America. And yeah, because of my own psychological links to the genre, because of the many that my dad did. Right. I could see a young Peter, or young Henry Fonda playing this part. Yeah. Totally. But I think it's interesting, the sort of conversation this movie and Peter's career have with Peter and his career... In that it seems like everything that Peter did in his life 
was rebellious and was against the system. Right. And was against everything his father stood for. Right. And yet here he is echoing a Western, echoing a lot of the values that that right. entails. Recalling John Ford films. Right. And yeah. And I mean, even down to like the realism of like Grapes of Wrath or something. Yeah. Like, I don't know, sort of what that struggle is. He allowed us inside himself, which was something that was impossible to do off screen at home and so forth. But on screen or on stage, it was amazing how he could do it. He reads it without any dramatic overlay, either in his voice or in his face. In fact, I'm not sure if he blinks. Had he put any spin on it, vocally or visually, had he done anything like that, it would have made the speech corny. But by not putting any spin on it, John Steinbeck's really fine words were able to play perfectly. Getting down to the real mm-hmm. of these people and, and, and what life is like. Yeah. And I feel like that's a lot of what this movie is trying to do. Yeah, or definitely. Does do. Yeah. The locations are great. It has an authentic look to it. And yet, despite the respect I think he clearly has for his father, he apparently refused to discuss uh, Jane or Henry in any interviews for this movie. Oh. He also refused any interviews where he had to wear a suit, jacket, or tie. <laughs> Totally fitting. With yeah, that. sticking it to the man. Yeah. <laughs> I don't blame him for not wanting to discuss his father or his either. sister. I mean, this is his project. He yeah. should talk about that. And But it's just interesting given how much it does feel like a tribute to his father. It does, way. yeah. Or it, his own version of, of his father's movie. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and I read that his dad loved the movie. Now oh, that's, really? Yeah. Hmm. yeah. I'm so, a little surprised by that. Yeah. But maybe he recognized, you know, yeah. something in his career in that movie. Peter would go on to direct two other features, Idaho Transfer in 1973 and Wanda, Nevada mm-hmm. in 1979, which is a Western comedy. Right, which featured his father. Featured yeah. his father in a cameo, and it's the only time they appeared on screen together. Right. Supposedly, uh, Peter paid his father $1,000 for a day's work because Henry called him and said, I'm out of work and need a job. <laughs> That's sweet. Is it? <laughs> He wanted to work with his son. No, that's nice. <laughs> I mean, I know that none of those movies made any kind of money. I haven't seen the other two, so I don't know, you know, how he did behind the camera. But uh, this film probably due a lot to Vilmos. Uh, was well directed. Yes. I thought. Yeah. I mean, given the lack of film knowledge, it seems Peter yeah. had. You have to wonder how much how is much? attributed to Vilmos or to even other right. people on the movie. True. <laughs> As I mentioned, it was apparently originally supposed to be shot in Italy. Peter wanted to shoot it in Mexico, but the Mexican government wouldn't give him a permit. Hmm. So it ended up being shoot, shot in New Mexico. Right. In uh, the summer of 1970, I believe. And I think to its benefit that it was shot in New Mexico. Yeah, I agree. I, the locations... They're great. Work. Yeah. Yeah. Was there like a lot there? Or like a... I was uh, curious about that. The, like the town, the, the main town where yeah. they go to the saloon. I don't know. There must have been, because it doesn't seem like a regular Hollywood back lot. There must, there must have been like a movie lot. It's a big lot. setup. I mean, it's a I big would... setup, but it didn't feel like it was like on the Universal lot. And there's anything. not enough of a budget for them to build a whole. No, no, no. <laughs> there had to have been something yeah. there, or maybe they shot somewhere else in California for those scenes right. or something. I, I read at one point while they were shooting a very deep scene 
they could hear not too far away a drive-in playing Easy Rider. <laughs> and like the soundtrack is, is That's blasting funny. and I think just haunting yes, a little he bit. Yes, he can't escape it. Yeah. Unfortunately, I also read that early on in the film, a chief horse wrangler was killed oh, hmm. while leaving a location and boarding a helicopter. Wow. Which seems to be a common film. Yeah, helicopter. Death. Yeah. This was, I think, uh, supposed to be an eight week shoot, I think. It went for mm. 10 weeks. They went like two weeks over. Apparently, Peter originally wanted Lee Grant for the female role, hmm. as recommended by Jane. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. So, Jane had some level of involvement or <laughs> she knew was, about uh, the project. And- right. In a way. Also, there are deleted scenes of Larry Hagman playing a sheriff. Right. In a subplot where they uh, kill the guy that they fight in the saloon that's bad-mouthing Hannah, played by Verna Bloom. And then I also read that he ended up dubbing the actor that plays the bartender with Hagman's voice. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Um, It's the first film credit of composer Bruce Langhorn, who is a Greenwich Village folk musician. Uh, who inspired the Bob Dylan song, Mr. Tambourine right. Man. Apparently Universal didn't want Peter to hire Langhorn because he was had never done a film score before. What a shock. Yeah. And they said, look, Fonda, you can't just be hiring all your friends on this. <laughs> <laughs> True to a degree, I think. <laughs> I read that, that he recorded the uh, score in his house. Like he had a... A film, like an 8mm film or yeah. something of the movie in his house, and he just played the guitar to it while he watched it. And that's how he recorded that's the score. That's pretty incredible, especially for the time. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot. everybody has a home studio these days. Right, but, right, but back then. Yeah. Another relative newcomer on the film was the editor, Frank Mazzola, who is who we should credit for the montage. Right. And apparently he explicitly ignored Peter's saying, don't give me montages. <laughs> <laughs> that's like half the movie is montages. Yeah. But not your traditional montage. Yeah. Um, yeah, what did what did what did you think of the montages? I was okay with the idea of them, but I thought they were a bit overused. It started to become pretentious. Like there were times when I looked at the film and I was like, "Oh, this is cinema," you know. <laughs> but then there are times where I'm like, "Oh, right, this is cinema. you're just yeah, you're now you're beating us over the head yeah. with it." Yeah, the like the opening I think is great, mm-hmm. um, but it does get overused at times, and it just feels like. Look how artistic we are. And, yeah, and just fade after fade right, after fade. Right, Yeah. They're really interesting in the way they're done. They are. With, uh, it's like a combination of still photography and superimpositions and dissolves and, and uh, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But it does get to be a bit much. But I do think it's interesting how many people behind this film were relatively new to the yeah. film game. Yeah. I mean, you have Vilmos. It's like his first major film. It's Peter's first direct directing. Right. Um, the editor is fairly new. First for the composer. Verna Bloom had only been in a couple of mm-hmm. films prior to this. Maybe it's Fonda like feeling grateful for the, the opportunity to direct and do his own project. Maybe he was like welcoming other newcomers in. Or know. just felt comfortable around the people that he knew. Yeah. Which is a big, I think a big part to filmmaking and making like an art project of any kind is just being with people that you can trust. Right, right. To carry out your creative vision. But it doesn't feel like unprofessional in it. No, it doesn't. It feels like a solid Hollywood. Oh, those aren't real actors. No, no, no. Yeah. Who cut this? (laughs) (laughs) And I guess it's better than having someone who's like an old hand saying, no, that's not how we do things, Mm -hmm. kid. You know, you got to do it like this. I think also going back to the, the montages and the fades, 
it is also, I think, hitting on a little bit of like the psychedelia, the kind of trippiness. Yes. It's definitely uh, of its time. Yeah. Those those montages. I'm sure yeah. of certain crowds, it might be very popular. Right. <clears throat> under certain influences. <laughs> what are you trying to say? And then back to the deleted scenes, like mm-hmm. the Larry Hagman subplot. Mm-hmm. When the film was screened on television on NBC in 1973, they put all those scenes back in the movie. Mm-hmm. And then Fonda later took them out in the early 2000s when the movie was restored, feeling they were extraneous. Because it was ba- <clears throat> basically lost between that TV yeah. airing in 73 and the early 2000s. Right, right. right. I think so. They just recently... been rediscovered. Right. But we watched them. They're on the Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're not really necessary there's one scene that maybe you could put back in for a slight explanation on something but you don't need it and there are other scenes that i think over explain the movie yeah best left on the cutting room floor yeah that is one of the things that i like about this movie is one that it has a a very simple plot Mm -hmm. and and i like that i'm not criticizing that in any way but two that there are a number of moments that are kind of left unexplained or you have to figure out as it's happening. Like one of the deleted scenes explains what happens to Peter Vonda's wife and where she is and where the homestead is. Right. And in the cut film that we saw, he's just sort of happens upon this house and you don't know where they are. At one point I was even kind of concerned that something was going to happen. Like it would, Mm. that he's trespassing on someone's property and, Someone's going to come out and shoot him or... I don't right, know. right. But then you find out that it's his ex-wife who is now claiming herself to be a widow. Right. Yeah, the scene that sets it up is not necessary and does kind of take away from the movie, I think, yeah. if, if it were in the film, yeah. And it, that scene also gives away a lot of the, the... The town knows that she is kind of promiscuous with her... With her hired, hired helps that, that, yeah. And I think in the cut version of the film you don't know that until later you don't correct. you gradually learn what her and point of also, view is i think she gets to take ownership of it in the <clears throat> cut version yes is it's her telling him yes this is what i need this is what i had to do right this is what how it's how it is yeah. deal deal with it yeah. yeah as opposed to just rumors from the townspeople right he was talking about hannah wasn't he was he you know he was that's why you hit him. Stop him from saying something about her. What was it, Arch? Said she slept with the hired help. Now I'm warning you, Harry, if you're gonna swing at me, I'll take a great deal of pleasure in kicking the living shit out of you. Do you believe him? He was a mouth off. It's the kind of story you find in any saloon. You really believe that, Arch? Of course I do. I ain't saying your Hannah never looked the side a man was on. But I sure don't believe what that fellow was saying. If I was you, Harry, I wouldn't be putting no questions to her. She ain't gonna take too kindly to you setting up judgment on her. Get up! Did I get the feeling your friend Harris made himself scarce? Could be. Why could that be now? I guess he knows I want to talk to you. What about? I hope you ain't getting ready to propose. In town today, someone said... 
They made some remarks about you. What sort of remarks? About you and the men that worked here. Go on, what'd they say? You know what they said. They said you slept with all your hired hands. You hired men to sleep with. God, what do you know about it? How many? Does it matter? Of course it matters. You were long gone before anybody got into my bed. And don't think that's because I was hankering after you. I wasn't. That was as long as I could stand it. I walked about this room on nights like this going crazy for a man, any man, didn't matter. And sometimes when there was a man out there, he knew about it and he'd come in. And sometimes I'd have him or he'd have me, whatever suits you. But not all of them. And not every time I wanted to. And when a season's work was over, I'd pay him off, no matter how well he'd worked or how well he'd pleased me. Because the man that's in a woman's bed thinks he's her boss. And sooner or later, they'd have tried to move their tackle out of the shed and in here, and I didn't want that. Because I'd already had one man in here, and I didn't want another. Is that all you want to ask me? Because with if you had that scene in, you would go in sort of knowing it front loads what's what they're going mm-hmm. to experience. So yeah, yeah, it was a wise cut. If we could dwell on her character a little bit mm-hmm. more, as we talked about, it is <clears throat> pretty feminist. Yeah, it is depicting a strong, independent woman who does actually need a man of some degree, right? If only for physical needs. Uh, always on her terms. On her terms. Yes. Yeah, she <clears throat> says. She knows that he's out there in the barn or whatever. And I have the choice to bring him into my bedroom or not. Right, And when I'm done with him, I send him on his way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I pay him and that's that. It's like the first fully formed, realistic portrayal of a woman in the Old West in any movie, probably, you know? And I think, like, yeah, realistic of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not trying to force... No, it's not a 70s ideal. It's not a free this. love swinging 60s no, no, no. Uh, uh, character set yeah. in the old west. It's it's legitimate, like you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's what ladies had to do when they were left alone. Right. And it's not glamorized in any way. Like no, she is not breathtakingly beautiful. No. <laughs> she is not shot in like a glamorous light or anything. No. I say all that. <laughs> yes. And now I'm going to set back feminism. Uh oh. Fifty years. There were times, though, when I kind of wished it were, like, a little bit sexier. (laughs) (laughs) We've referenced Paint Your Wagon, and one of the things that I do like about Paint Your Wagon is the the sort of of threesome relationship Mm -hmm. that's depicted. And you touch on that a little bit in this movie. It's almost hinted at, but not quite. And I kind of wanted it to be a full-fledged relationship between Peter Fonda, Verna Bloom, and Warren Oates. Right. Where they... sort of share each other yeah and it's not a competition it's not like about that it's just the facts of life Mm -hmm. the three of us are here we're going to share this life together we're a family now right um but it never goes that far no part of the reason that that prompts me to say that is there is a beautiful moment with verna and Warren warren on the the porch where she's in a rocking chair and he's sitting at her feet 
and they're having a, a nice moment of dialogue and there's sort of a, a wanting in, <laughs> in their eyes and he puts his hand on her foot in a pretty steamy way yeah <laughs> <laughs> but that's it that's the extent of it right and, and he I takes his it. hand away, i love yeah. that moment but i wanted to see more of it elsewhere hmm. i guess is all, yeah. all i'm saying interesting another thing i wanted your thoughts on mm-hmm. what do you make of the beginning after the the opening montage of them at the river and they everything sort of comes to a halt when a dead girl's body floats down the river right because i don't really know what to make of it yeah it's an unusual scene and it's never referenced again right the only thing i could think of it is just sort of the fragile nature of life in the Mm -hmm. old west and maybe it it makes harry realize oh i've got this family back home and Mm -hmm. what am i doing Mm -hmm. and the fact that it's a little girl and he has a daughter roughly the same age Mm -hmm. maybe that you know it could be her it could be you know i don't know that that's just sort of maybe the you know the randomness of of life and and what you know anything can happen and yeah. maybe that's what kind of sets him to to decide to go home. That's sort of what I took out of it. I don't know. It's an unsettling way to it open is. the film. I mean, it. <clears throat> I think it sets you up for it. Something about this movie isn't quite right. Yes. Yes. This isn't going to be exactly the movie you're expecting. Yes. That's true. It does t- get you off balance right away. You have this beautiful, beautiful, idyllic opening scene of them at the river, and then all of a Frogging. sudden, yes, <laughs> and the music is playing, and then all of a sudden it's thrown out of whack. And the younger one, uh, Dan, is like freaked out and wants to rest, get get her yeah. out of the water. And they, they, Peter Fonda cuts the fishing line that she's hung on and sends her away. You know. And I should say, at no point do you ever see her body. Like it's not exploited <clears throat> no, for the gore no. or the shock of seeing a young girl's body. You get like a short long shot that's i think a superimposition mm-hmm. it dissolves yeah so you yeah. you barely get any kind of look at it you see like her feet kind of and, and that's like, about it when he cuts the line she is off she's gone yeah yeah <clears throat> and it's never addressed again yeah yeah it's an interesting uh way that's a good point about it being unsettling and kind mm-hmm. of throwing you off because this movie does kind of uh do some disturbing things yeah i mean we can talk more about the violence of it mm-hmm. um and i guess to sort of set us up for that i'll just quote peter saying that he wanted the violence of this movie to be unacceptable and unexpected. I'd say that's about right. But like I said, I don't think it's exploitative in a way that like no peck and paw or something. Definitely not peck and paw. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or other other it's... filmmakers at that time that I think are, or, sure. or even like Bonnie and Clyde or something, which that like epic bloodbath. Right. It's not a squib fest. It's not like in your face, but it is disturbing and and off-putting and surprising yeah i mean we talked about the moment where um severin darden severin darden gets shot in the feet like through the (laughs) through the bottom of his feet both feet it's really disturbing and then when he's writhing on the floor and he looks back and sees the wounds and he just starts screaming that's it's really unsettling and and upsetting and then there's a moment where um peter gets sent warren oates Severed finger. Severed finger. Yeah. And he like opens it in a napkin. I mean, that's that's maybe a little exploitative, but it is unexpected. Yes. And yes. What did I say? Un- unacceptable and unexpected. Yes. Yes. Where'd you get this horse? Sam sent me with it. Where's Harris? He wants you to come see him. Where is he? Waiting for you. What is it, Harry? Sarge, something's wrong. Is he sick? 
Not exactly. He sent you this. Sam says each week you don't show up, he's going to take off another. And if you don't show up ever, he's going to cut off his toes and all. Huh? Harry, what are you doing? They cut off one of Archie's fingers. One each week, they say, till I get there. How do you know it's his finger? Sure as hell is somebody's finger. As soon as they got Arch, I reckon it's his, okay? And and but you don't see a scene where the bad guys cut off his finger no. or anything like that. No. And and the violence is fast. Mm-hmm. It's someone gets shot and they you know, they're down. It's never like about them being gunfighters. No, or no, no. Something. It's more like, you know, quote it's about unquote the real between that. Yes. Yeah. We mentioned that Peter Fonda's character has a daughter. I liked, and I'm sure you liked, that she never speaks. <laughs> yes, she's not a cute, preco- mm. precocious child. Or an annoying child, right. as is often a trope. She has like one line, I think, maybe. Really? Yeah. She tells, I think she tells him uh, that that guy's there with, the, with Warren Oates' finger. She yeah. goes, there's a strange man here or something. But she plays it well. Like I think it's when Peter Fonda's leaving at the end to go rescue mm-hmm. Warren Oates, and she comes running to her mother and just like grabs her mm-hmm. apron and just stands there, mm-hmm. and and it's like it's like a real moment, like yeah. how a child you know would react, and and it's, I don't know, she's good. She's never bad. She's no Brandon DeWild or DeWild. <laughs> I wonder if not giving her much dialogue is sort of a product of him being an inexperienced director working with a child actor right maybe she wasn't even an actual actress you know they just had a kid so yeah yeah. i like the scenes at the farm are really nice between the there's some well-acted scenes and and nice moments and Mm -hmm. verna you know verna bloom her character i mean it's such a good character such a strong character Mm -hmm. uh, a well-rounded and just a whole person you know i think that's a product of both the performance the direction and the script Mm -hmm. harry you can't you came back, you said. You said you come back, you can't go away, you can't. The longer I wait, the worse it'll be for him, Hannah. I don't care about him, I care about me and Janie and you. You never meant to stay, you never. You planned it, the two of you. You planned it. It's your way of getting away again, you planned it. That's not true, Hannah. I have to go. Arch is in this trouble because of me. I have to get him out of it. Now, when that's done, I'll be back. And things will be right. You won't come back. I know it. Hope I'm not jumping the gun. Pardon the pun. Yes. the Western podcast. (laughs) What do you make of the ending? What do you mean specifically? Either about the the final sort of gunfight where, spoiler, Peter Fonda is killed in action, sort Mm -hmm. of. Or about Warren Oates... uh, Returning, returning to the, the homestead with Verna. Yeah, it's an interesting ending. He rides up 
they don't talk. He he leads Harry's horse. Actually, I think he's riding Harry's horse mm. and leading his horse back, which is mm. curious. Um, but he goes to the barn and goes inside the barn. It's sort of open ending. Is he going to stay? Is he you know what? Is he just is he just there to break the news and bring the horse back? I like to th- sort of think that maybe he's going to stay. Mm-hmm. You know, he can fill Harry's role there. Yeah, I I agree with you in that interpretation. To a degree that I don't even think it's that open-ended. Perhaps not, yeah. But I think it's unexplained. Yes. And I like that. Yeah, it's not It's not made clear that he's going to stay there with her or anything. It's not... They have no dialogue when right. he rides up, yeah. She immediately processes what has happened <clears throat> to Peter, mm-hmm. and Warren kind of takes his place. Yes, she goes in the house, and he goes in the barn. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it, I, it's a beautiful ending, yeah, I think. Yeah, I agree. I really liked it. Yeah, the, the gunfight... Also, it's really quick, mm-hmm. and Peter's death is you know tragic and he's, it's awful and i think another interesting little something to think about mm-hmm. is how this film in a way echoes the easy rider plot of going from this traveling from the southwest eastward um while maybe even thinking about california to some degree mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. in easy rider they're going from california to new orleans mm-hmm. and in this film they're coming from their travels in the west to return to the homestead. I'm not quite sure where that's supposed to be. Maybe it is New Mexico or something. I, yeah, maybe. Or is there a mention of Texas? I think it's New Mexico maybe. or Texas. Maybe. But just sort of what that means for each film in that Easy Rider is trying to... Find America? Yeah, find America. And... Right. They're coming from the West Coast, which is probably not America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and they're going east to the heartland. Where it's sort of an alien world. Yes. And they are taken by these rednecks. Rednecks and, and yeah. Sort of an underbelly of America. You know, this used to be a hell of a good country. I can't understand what's going on with it. Man, everybody got chicken, that's what happened. Hey, we can't even get into, like, a second-rate hotel. I mean, a second-rate motel, you dig? Don't they think we're going to cut their throat or something, man? Like, they're scared, man. Oh, they're not scared of you. They're scared of what you represent to them. Hey, man. All we represent to them, man, is somebody who needs a haircut. Oh, no. What you represent to them is freedom. What the hell's wrong with freedom, man? That's what it's all about. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what it's all about, all right. But talking about it and being it, that's two different things. I mean, it's real hard to be free when you are bought and sold in the marketplace. Of course, don't ever tell anybody that they're not free, because then they're going to get real busy killing and maiming to prove to you that they are. Oh, yeah, they're going to talk to you and talk to you and talk to you about individual freedom. But they see a free individual, it's going to scare them. No, well, don't make them running scared. No, it makes them dangerous. Whereas this film, I think they're returning to a way of life that they missed. Right. To a family that they missed and a traditional sort of thing. And it's addressed like it's a hard way being a wanderer yes it's a hard life out there yeah there's several lines about that and and the kid dan wants to go to the coast he wants to go to california Mm -hmm. which i think represents like you know 
maybe the opposite, yeah. like you're saying, of Easy Rider. New Horizons. Yeah. New, New Horizons, yes. He's talking about everything's great out there, you know. You have the weather, you have the beach. The big ocean. The ocean, yeah. yeah. And the women, he says, you know. Mm-hmm. You setting the coast down? What the hell? We got nothing but time. And I'll tell you something. That is where it's really good out there in California. You got your, got your weather. Your women are half Mex, half American. You've got your gold and oranges and the ocean. They say that ocean looks like a great blue prairie. I ain't never seen that much water. Me neither. It's here's the most water I ever saw. But I think it's interesting. Is it, do you think, Peter Fonda trying to erase what he said with Easy Rider? Perhaps. I mean, granted, this is, you know, a year or two after. Yeah. So is he already changing his point of view at that point you know from what i read he was sick of the image being put upon him yeah whether his ideals had actually changed i'm not sure but i think he wanted to tell people i'm not necessarily the guy you think right I am. right i'm capable of making a traditional western right and he's in his early 30s i yeah. think at this point so you know jamie changing his point of view he's no longer you know pursuing the youth rebellion right. rebellious uh qualities of his earlier days. He's all right, Harry. He's just young, full of piss and vinegar like you was. I like that. You're enough. He's always wanting to go someplace you hadn't been. <laughs> you really want to go to the coast, aren't you? Yeah, good as anywhere, better than most. What's your fancy, Harry? I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that's yeah. the, the take that's, that's, I get from yeah. it. Everyone has been talking about Easy Rider. Right. Let's and do I don't something. want to be pigeonholed. I don't want to make another biker movie. Right. I'm not necessarily like a junkie. This is not going to appeal yeah. to the counterculture, I don't think. You right. know, that it doesn't seem like it's not uh, uh, pandering to mm-hmm. any, any kind of audience like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that might be where went wrong yeah yeah as far as being a quote-unquote success it might be too artsy for the traditional western crowd too straight too straight for the counterculture counterculture, yeah Yeah. the teens hate westerns (laughs) they want spaghetti westerns is Mm -hmm. what they want Mm -hmm. lots of shooting and uh super cool guys and ponchos and yeah i mean we should say like this movie is not a spaghetti western not not in as much as each appeals to kind of a counterculture aesthetic and yes not not really influenced at all by the spaghetti mm. western. I would say maybe a little bit of look of the, some of the cowboys, but in the in the town, or in the just beginning. maybe like a European vibe. Yeah, in a yeah, way. but that would but be like the Europeans were trying to be American. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I this guess is they sort of meet in the middle, but coming from different directions. Yes, this is European influence from France and the right. New Wave and that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we should definitely hit upon the actors yes. that we haven't already talked about. Yes. First and foremost, the late, great Warren Oates, who is amazing in this movie. Yes. he's He gives such a warm, likable performance. I would have um, never thought of him as a dreamboat. <laughs> yeah. Usually he plays screwballs and scumbags yeah. and dirtbags, and, and, but he's such a, he's just a nice guy likable fellow in this movie he's really great performance i mean he's a quintessential character actor yes that's what he does best he's one of the best kind of wackos or villains or right like peckinpah who he worked with numerous times and is probably most associated with often cast him as you know awful people and and uh he reads as like regional for whatever that you know requires yeah yeah 
He's from Kentucky, so he fits in great in westerns. But he's also great in the same year in Monty Hellman's uh, Tulane Blacktop. is a, another amazing performance mm-hmm. from Warren Oates. Check it out if you haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah, just before this movie, he had made uh, The Wild Bunch in right. 1969, and There Was a Crooked Man in 1970 with Henry Fonda. Right. Prior to that, he was in a million... TV show. Every TV show, every TV Western. Um, he said there were 40 Western series in the 50s and 60s, and I went from one to the other. Yeah. I started out playing the third bad guy on a horse and worked my way up to the number one bad guy. <laughs> and of course, he's in Ride the High Country, Major Dundee for Peck and Paw, uh, Monty Hellman's Western, The Shooting mm-hmm. in the 60s. Um, he would go on to co star with Fonda twice more in Race with the Devil right. in 1975 and 92 in the Shade right. also in 1975. Yeah, they became actually good friends. Yeah. He uh, would play Dillinger for John Melius in the 70s. Um, he worked with Terrence Malick. He worked with Spielberg. He worked with William Friedkin, Philip Kaufman. I mean, the guy was in demand, you know. Yeah. Just a great character actor. But Peter said of him, uh, of casting him, I saw a gentleness, a sensitivity in Warren that I guess no one had ever seen before. I guess that's why the people at Universal didn't want me to cast him. <laughs> yeah, like, it yeah. is like it is going against. It's a very what he's known for. Yeah, it's a very different part for him. Yeah, mm-hmm. usually, uh, like I said, just some sort of awful weirdo. You know, <laughs> one of the Gorch brothers in the Wild Bunch. But yeah, Warren, uh, great actor, died too soon. Yeah, really great performance mm-hmm. in this, and he makes elevates the movie yeah. i think rest in peace peter fonda but he's not my favorite <laughs> not actor. yes not not i don't think he's particularly interesting mm-hmm. doesn't have the highest skill level as an actor don't I would think say. he's as good as henry or jane no but yeah warren definitely makes this mm-hmm. movie a must must see i think yeah do you want to talk about verna bloom yeah yeah like i said she this was i think her third feature film mm-hmm. prior to this she had been uh, notably in medium cool mm-hmm. the haskell wexler film she would work with clint eastwood in high plains drifter and honky tonk man mm-hmm. she would play mary in mm-hmm. uh, the last temptation of christ for scorsese one she's, of her late credits yeah, yeah she's in after hours um animal house animal house yeah she's dean wormer's wife in animal house <laughs> She didn't have a lot of feature film career uh, uh, credits, I don't think, but uh, I think she maybe she's primarily a stage actress. But she's really good in this. Mm-hmm. I think she also makes the film. It kind of yes. is the same way that Warren yes. does. I mean, I would say the heart of the film is that character. Yes. Oh, for sure. She controls the film and those two men. Yes. In a certain way. Yes, yeah, she uh, definitely is controlling it. She's deciding what's happening in the in that situation. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, even before she appears on screen, they have this dialogue where like Warren wants to know all about her and right. like, describe her to me, and Peter can't quite. <laughs> he can't articulate. Articulate. Yeah. And she has red hair. Mean what you like. Well, I mean, is she tall, thin, fat, round, brown hair, blue eyes? What's she like? Medium, red hair, brown eyes, I guess. I think I know her. She had a nice voice. How old is she? How old? Well, she was 30 when we was married. And how old was you? 20. Just turned. Hell, boy, you didn't stand a chance. I wasn't ready, that's all. 
wonder what your wife's going to say to you when she lays eyes on you, Harry. Well, what I mean is, what kind of nature does she have? Uh, I don't rightly recall. I only lived with her about a year and nine months. Well, if I had a horse for a year and nine months, I'd sure know how many teeth he had. She had three teeth. I remember that. Come on. <laughs> Which is a nice line. Yeah, yeah. it is. But yeah, she gives a really memorable performance mm-hmm. in this, and it helps that her character is so well written and well rounded. Yeah. yeah. And her wordless reactions too are very powerful. Just yeah. Her expressions. Right. Uh, another aspect we didn't talk about yeah. was the fact that she's supposed to be 10 years older than oh, Peter yeah. Fonda in this movie, which is I think, think is also interesting yeah. um, going against the traditional mm-hmm. male-female relationship right. in Westerns and movies in general. But I would guess would be realistic in that I'm sure women were in short supply. Right. And maybe you didn't necessarily have your pick of the litter. True. That's a good point. Not that older women are undesirable. No, but <laughs> it's just not what you see yeah. traditionally. Yes. Verna, we should mention, was married to uh, Scorsese collaborator Jay Cox. Oh, right, right. Uh, who's also a critic. Right. And she, much like uh, Peter Fonda, sadly died in 2019. Yeah. We just lost them. We just lost them both, yeah. Also, uh, we mentioned Severn Darden is in the film. He's kind Who of a... I think has a made-up name, much like <laughs> Hume Cronin. No one is named either of those names. I've known several Severns. Severns. He was uh, a New Orleans native who moved to Chicago and became a member of the Second City comedy troupe. He did all sorts of movies during this era. He might be best known for uh, The President's Analyst uh, with opposite James Coburn. And he was also in two of the Planet of the Apes movies, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes and Battle for the Planet of the Apes, two of the later sequels. Um, he was in They Shoot They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Day of the Dolphin, Model Shop, which was Jacques Demy's American debut and uh, he would work with Fonda again in Wanda, Nevada. An interesting character actor, kind of an unusual guy, and he plays an effective villain in this, I think. I I said after watching the movie, why aren't there more good guys that wear glasses? Yeah, yeah. He's another bad guy with glasses. (laughs) Those characteristics like having a British accent that is reserved for villains. Yes, yeah. Justice for the four eyes out there. And then another, uh, in a small part, one of the the gunfighters with Severn Darden is Ted Markland, who was like a character actor. No, he was on High Chaparral for several mm. years and just did lots of small parts in Westerns mm-hmm. and stuff. People may recognize him. He was the one in The Duster. I always notice yes. a man in The Duster. <laughs> and Robert Pratt played Dan, who I don't... He was sort of just a lot of TV, didn't really... His career didn't ever go anywhere. And I liked your line about his performance. Um, what is it he, he said? He fulfilled the role well of the... Not precocious, but uh, excited, young young kid. Right, green. But I didn't want to see any more of him. Yeah. I was glad that he died early in the picture. (laughs) He he was perfect. Yes. But too much of him would have been too much. Or any more of him would have been too much. And I think that's the character, not necessarily the actor. Yeah. I don't want to hate on the actor. The way the character was written was was kind of annoying. Yeah. Yeah. But intentionally so. His death scene is really tragic, I think. Yeah. It's just sort of... It's just dirty. Just dirty, it, yeah. and he's screaming for his mother, and it's just awful. Well, 
just the circumstances. The circumstances, it, that yeah. He's with another man's woman, right? And, he's and, been set up, yeah. Yeah, he's been set up, and the woman is like abused by her, right? By it's Severn. He's yeah, he's particularly cruel to her uh, in later scenes, as you'll see. Is he dead? I found him in our house. He was attacking her. I called him, and I thought he went for his gun, but I guess he was just pulling on his pants. How did he find your wife? Well, I guess he just saw her outside and followed her home. When I got there, he was all over her. You mind if I ask her about that? Well, she don't speak any American. Won't do you any good. Don't seem to me there's much to ask. The woman's all messed up. Your friend's got his pants half off. Seems pretty plain to me. Where can we bury him? Yeah, it's just an awful mm-hmm. situation. Back to Peter. He would uh, go on to have two uh, late career westerns. In his, mm-hmm. uh, he would do three, the 310 to Yuma remake mm-hmm. in 2007, and then The Ballad of Lefty Brown mm-hmm. uh, in 2017, where he's basically playing like a John Wayne type or mm-hmm. a Henry Fonda type mm-hmm. to uh, Bill Pullman's um, Walter Brennan type character, mm-hmm. which I think is... Of the actors still around at the time, he most yeah. fits that bill, you know. He's the legacy actor. Yes, at that point. yeah. And then he had like a lot of a couple of excellent late career movies, Yuli's Gold, which I think he was Oscar nominated for, mm-hmm. and Soderbergh's The Limey, mm-hmm. which is a you know has sort of a, a throwback to the '60s movie, which is really good. Yeah. He also made in the '60s a TV movie called High Noon: The Clock Strikes Noon Again, <laughs> where he plays the the grown son of Gary Cooper's. Marshall uh, Will Kane. Cooper's character has been murdered and he comes back to avenge him from the sons of Frank Miller who were the bad guys in, in the original High Noon. Which, this just sounds awful. It sounds awful, <laughs> but part of me really wants to I would to really love it. to see it. Oh. I'm sus- I suspect it was a TV pilot that yeah. didn't go. But, I don't know. <laughs> but I would love to see that. The ideas that people come up I with. I know. Terrible. <laughs> I think this is a noteworthy film especially as far as westerns go to talk about in the new hollywood era of american cinema for the reasons we've discussed even if it wasn't necessarily successful at the time i think it has had a lasting effect it's become a cult classic mm-hmm. deservedly so i'd say clint eastwood uh acknowledged it for its gritty realism that he used in unforgiven i sort of wonder if there is a bit of a comparison to be made uh with terrence malick who we even mentioned in this yeah. podcast with yeah. the Mal- malick is often accused of style over substance right you look at something like days of heaven with the editing the way the light is used the storytelling the cinematography being so important to it yeah back when he was still working with a with a script and stuff yeah, yeah. um <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I can definitely see uh, its influence on Unforgiven, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It feels a similar kind of vibe to mm-hmm. it. I think especially with, now that I'm thinking about it, with those minor characters, like you're talking about, like kind of the like ugly deaths. And yes, the, yeah. Yeah, those smaller characters. Mm-hmm. As we said, perhaps it was, The Hired Hand was a movie that was too straight for the young crowd. Right. And that coupled with Universal not knowing what to do with right. it. Yeah. As we said, like really none of these youth-oriented movies that came out in the 70s 
um, were ever able to meet either the commercial or the critical success of right. Easy Rider. Right. Even if you don't think Easy Rider is that great a movie. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Which a lot of people don't. Yeah. I think this is better than Easy Rider. It doesn't quite meet that counterculture audience, you know, it doesn't meet their kind of needs or expectations in any way, I don't think. And I think some of the things to blame for this movie, as well as these other 70s movies, are bad studio marketing. Yes. They didn't know how to handle it. Right. Perhaps over-artistic filmmaking for what the studios were making. Right. Um, and even a lack of star power. Yeah. They didn't have these bankable, Gary Cooper is reappearing in High Noon Part 2. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know how to sell that. They right. They didn't know how to sell Warren Oates starring right. in a picture. Right, right. Not that he would have been right for this, but like if Clint Eastwood had played Peter Fonda's part, like I wonder. I, I saw that to a degree. I thought yeah. about that. They're they're sort of a similar type. He could have, yeah. He 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 wouldn't be quite right for mm -hmm. it, but he could, you know. And I wonder if, but also you wonder if his audience would have rejected it for not enough gunplay or him not playing, you know, yeah, the tor the normal man with no name type or whatever. Right. Dennis Hopper, going back to uh -huh. Easy Rider, after he made his commercial flop of that era the last movie right he would criticize his contemporaries of being overly nostalgic and i wonder how that plays into this movie given perhaps peter was trying to revert his counterculture imagery mm -hmm. was trying to recreate his father's Father. western movies mm -hmm. but you do sort of think about it that there was a lot of like what Dennis Hopper said was 1940s sentimentality and romanticism. You look at filmmakers like Peter Bogdanovich, yeah. George Lucas, yeah. who are completely recreating <laughs> their are, 30s and 40s yes. favorite childhood memories, Totally, basically. totally. And yet are heralded for breaking up Hollywood and right. leading all to your cinema. But part of me wants to agree with Dennis Hopper of like, what new were they doing? Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, even Spielberg is remaking 50s monster movies and, right. and sci-fi and that kind of thing. But you point. look at a movie like Easy Rider, and I think it is of its time doing something new. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that I don't think The Hired Hand does that. Yeah. It, it adds sort of a superficial dressing to yes. a, a traditional movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, even um, watching this, Fonda and Warren Oates sort of reminded me of Henry Fonda and Harry Morgan in the Oxbow incident. They're yeah. a couple of cowhands that drift yeah. into town and and her buddies, and it's kind of similar to that their dynamic, I think. And it, like it's an age old plot. Yeah, totally. <laughs> in yeah. a in a way. Yeah. Even if it's written by a Scotsman. <laughs> Do you have anything else? I think that wraps it up for this one. Yeah. Please rate, subscribe, let us know what you like, what you don't like. So that's all from me, Felicity. Uh, me, Clarence. And the spirit of Monty Hillman. Nice. Adios. Mm -hmm.